the Paralympics GB podcast with Hannah Cockcroft. Hello, I'm Hannah Cockcroft and this is the official Paralympics GB podcast. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but it's now officially Paralympics Games year. And as we're counting down to the start of Paris 2024, I'll be catching up with a whole range of athletes hoping to represent Paralympics GB this summer. Today, we're honoured to have a true champion with us. From a shy child in Hull to a Paralympic gold medalist in judo at the Tokyo 2020 Games, his journey is nothing short of extraordinary. He's found strength on the judo mat and now he's in training for Paris 2024 to defend his crown. Join us as we dive into a story of resilience, triumph and making a positive impact both in and out of the sporting arena. Welcome to Chris Skelly MBE. Thank you for coming on. I can't believe that we're already back round to a games year. How are you feeling about it? Quite, yeah, I think it's got a bit of a flash, if I'm honest. Like, I can't really explain it. One minute you're kind of in Tokyo and the next minute you're now in the Paris year. So it does feel like these last two years have just like flown by. And yeah, it's quite scary when that happens because you don't feel like your feet have touched the floor. Did you manage to relax with a pot pie over Christmas? Well, <laughs> well... Sort of. I've had the worst news in my case because I've become, a lot of people tease me for this, but um, so I've become a celiac in the last year. So basically it means I have to be really careful what I eat. And pork pies are eatable, but I have to find gluten-free ones. So I think the amount I ate after Tokyo maybe caused the effect of becoming a celiac. So yeah, I think, I think it's taught me like, I overindulged after the games. Mate, honestly, I'm I'm intrigued to get into that, how many pork pies you actually ate post-Tokyo to change ridiculous. your life that drastically. That's um, It that's is it. ridiculous. Yeah. yeah, I think I'm the only person in history to make, give myself celiac disease. <laughs> now, it's back to training, full steam ahead for the next nine months. What does a week of training look like for you? So, yeah, a week of training is quite tough, really, especially in judo because it's quite a physical sport. So every morning we have randori, which is basically like sparring. And we've got like a really good set of lads at the National Training Centre in Walsall. We do that every morning. And then in the afternoon, you have a technical or a gym session or gym and technical, depends what uh, your programme is looking like. And then in the evenings, it's kind of up to you what you want to do. It's either for recovery or me and some of my other team members go to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is a fantastic sport. It complements judo quite nicely. We're just this year going to be also getting a bit more wrestling involved as well so we do cross train quite a bit which is really good so we do have quite a full-on week by the time you come to weekend you just kind of collapse on the sofa not moving so yeah it's quite a busy week I mean you're never getting bored in that though are you because you're doing that many no. different things I I literally push in a circle every day there's no <laughs> there's no real variation there's loads of variation but I just think for us it's it, especially with judo it's a very important I think to cross train and to to learn of other sports you actually some kind of you see UFC fighters do it quite a bit cross training mm-hmm. uh, going into different sports and stuff like that and you know I think I've took my approach to that a little bit obviously I'm not going to do the striking side of it but <laughs> you know I like to go to the experts in their field and kind of ask what their thoughts and how I can improve so I'm a, I'm a big sponge and I like to learn off people well, I was going to ask you about that because actually judo wasn't your only sporting love. Like if we go to baby Chris when you were little and running around, can you tell us a bit about how you got into judo? Believe it or not, I was a very shy young man, Hannah. Uh, I don't believe that for a second. No, well, I was very shy. I was a dumpy little kid. My <laughs> mum my mum overfed me as a kid and I had a nan who was exactly the same. And my mum wanted to keep me fit and kind of make me socialise because I was quite a shy lad and 
they put me into two sports, which basically you get very close to people. And that was judo and rugby. And I loved them both. And again, it complements each other really nice. I think judo complements rugby with the, with the physicality. And obviously, you, you know, the rugby then complements judo also with physicality. So, yeah, I loved it. And I was a part of a fantastic uh, little club in Hull called Hull Ionians, the best club in the world, which might get a lot of feedback from that, actually. But I say so. And yeah, I just loved it. I did it all, all through primary school and secondary school. I think it's also a way for me not to kind of get into mischief or anything like that. Not saying I'm a mischievous fellow, but... I don't think any of us are believing that. I don't... No, I don't no, think. no. No, I was a goody two-shoes. But yes, I've been a good lad all my life. And um, and that's what judo rugby... I think judo rugby gave me that discipline and that kind of structure in my life. And I made so many friends, life, lifelong friends from both mm. sports. And, you know, I'm always in touch with the lads on, in, from the rugby team and I'm still in touch with the lads from my judo club. So yeah, it's been two amazing sports in my life. But being a Paralympian just really wasn't the dream, you know, like you talk to loads of athletes, don't you? And they go, oh, I watched the Olympics or Paralympics when I was, I don't know, six and that was me. But actually you weren't diagnosed with your disability till a little later, were you? No. So I'm quite a, a unique story in the sense of, you know, I feel a bit guilty when I say this, but this was never my dream to become a Paralympian or Olympian like. You know, I loved watching Olympics and Paralympics. I loved uh, watching all sorts of sports and getting involved and like being real interested in it. But then my kind of life took a bit of a, a turn and my dream was to have my own garage. I, I was a mechanic. I was trained as a mechanic because at school you can do like GCSEs and our mind was be to become a car mechanic. And, you know, I, got, I went through school and I went through college. But through the whole kind of my school life and college life, I always struggled with my eyes. Like I had glasses, had prescription glasses and everything like that. And just at kind of a certain age, I hit when my eyes just got a little bit worse and the light affected my eyes more and it just kept getting worse and worse. And like there was no one to be there to kind of tell me what was happening. And um, yeah, it was a very kind of tough part of my life. And I feel a bit guilty when I say that, when I, you know, be honest about it. Like it wasn't my first dream to become a, a Paralympian. But, you know, I think just what happened to me, I think kind of almost pushed me in that direction. And I think to myself, like, it was meant to happen and I'm, you know, I'm upset I didn't get to do that dream of becoming a mechanic. But to get the dream of then doing what I've done is, I think I'm very grateful and very humble to kind of been given the chance. I don't think it's anything to feel guilty about. I think it's definitely more of an able-bodied thing to dream of being an athlete than, than when you have a disability. I never dreamt of being a Paralympian. This was this was not my plan. But it, it happens, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it does. And, and I think because of our such late diagnosis, so... Because I was always had issues with my eyes and my hearing. And no one kind of really kind of told me what was happening. And then at a certain age, I hit and I just I couldn't cope with the light anymore. My eyesight got worked, my prescription glasses stopped working. And I just got really tired and I got really emotional. And like there was no one there to put an arm around me. And, you know, obviously I went to kind of the hospitals in Britain and they sadly couldn't help me. And, they, well, they didn't really understand what was happening to me. I had to go and see psychiatric nurse and I had to go into a psychiatric ward for a day to kind of speak to someone see if I was making it up all these things are happening to me and like people are saying wow we don't think you've got anything we think you're making it up and everything like that and that's quite a tough thing to kind of be told and it's caused a little bit of kind of a bit of a PTSD almost if that makes sense from what people are saying to me and then and then I have just very luckily I was whisked off to America to Harvard University and they looked after me for a full week and they did all the tests on me and everything like that and then that's when I kind of found out I had a real rare version of an unseen version of ocular albinism. Um, but it's more common now because it's more, there's more technology to understand albinism and 
to kind of understand different types of it. I think like in the last 10 years, there's 12 more versions being found of Oculus Tennis Albinism. So it's an ongoing condition and it was a very tough life to kind of be told that, oh, we think you're making it up and you know, we don't believe you. And then I kind of broke down in this guy's arms in Boston, I remember. He just put an arm around me and went, we'll look after you. And then I just... And then, th- thank God, I was able to do that. I would, I'd still be sat at home going, what is up with me? Yeah, absolutely. I'm really glad that you said the name of your disability because I was going to attempt it, but I'm not, <laughs> not going to now. Can you tell us a bit about it? Because it is actually, it is still quite rare. And I know that we, when we met recently on a photo shoot, you were telling me about it, how it affects you, and I'd never really heard of it. So can you tell our listeners a little bit more? Yeah, so Oculus albinism is, is your pigmentation. So so I suffer from the light a lot. As you saw, Hannah, at this photo shoot, it was my worst nightmare with these massive lights in my eyes flashing away. <laughs> it was my worst nightmare. And I also suffer with my acuity, so I don't really see stuff total clearness like, like you, you might do, Hannah. So I have to have stuff quite close to my face. I have magnifying mm-hmm. glasses. I have my iPhone and my iPad, which are kind of my life because I use everything to, to zoom in on and to make it bigger. Uh, and all my settings are, are massive. So when people use my phone, they just they have to hold it away from their eyes. It's so massive. So <laughs> I struggle a lot with that sense. And, and also I burn quite easily. So I can't really be in total sunlight <laughs> for a long time before I start burning. I just smell burning on my skin. I'm like, ooh, get the Factor 50 on. So yeah, <laughs> it's quite funny because my wife loves the, loves the heat. And she's sat in the sun sunbathing. And I'm in the I'm like the typical Brit abroad in the corner with the umbrella above me and five towels covering me and <laughs> to 50 on it so yeah that's kind of how it affects me really I have a cane so I've just started using a cane in the last few years uh, which is another big kind of hurdle for me to come over because that's admitting to yourself you need a bit of an aid you know which is quite yeah. quite tough but no yeah so that's my condition in, in in a nutshell really it's it's a lot of kind of affected by the light and the acuity levels are not that good and and I don't dress myself that well because I think colors as well yeah I've come out a few times and my wife has sent me back into the wardrobe to get changed. Um, so, yeah, that's another issue as well. I'm not good with colour. so. Uh, I yeah. think I, I don't think you can blame that on your disability. I've, I've met a lot of people who are very similar and they haven't got the excuse you've got. So just milk it. It's fine. I think a lot of people would actually say that's nothing to do with my eyesight. I just have terrible fashion sense. But <laughs> I like to say that I, it's, my, it's my eyesight, but... A lot of people like to tell me it's just I've got a terrible taste in fashion. So, yeah. So, judo played quite an important role for you during, you know, that probably quite a scary time of your life. Yeah. I always give a, a kind of description of, like, the darkness was kind of coming around me. And there was nothing but darkness in my life. Mm. And there was no one kind of there to, by my mum, to kind of put an arm around me. And I put the one shining kind of, I say, star in my life was the judo. Because I had to stop my rugby. I yeah. just struggled with the light too much and I just couldn't see the light that well anymore and like I really did struggle with that and kind of losing the, the other the other love in my life which was rugby and judo was a kind of judo was the the hand that just pulled me out and just said trust me and I always be grateful to the sport I always be grateful to British judo for giving me an opportunity and a chance just to kind of do something that would let me come out of that darkness because there's no kind of book there's no like manual on how to live with that there's no manual on how to live in the dark and live that period of my life where it was a very dark period and kind of really 
struggled with my mental health and everything like that. And Judah just pulled me out of it, and it and it kept me going. It gave me structure. It gave me people that I that I loved. Just again, put their arms around me and say, "We we're behind you. We'll love you and support you." And I'd always be grateful to the sport. And yeah, it's just it's an amazing sport, and I'll always be grateful. I can tell that it means a lot to you as well because you just you're putting a lot of thought into what you're saying. I love that. Yeah, I I just there's an unconditional like my often unconditional love is my wife, but there's another unconditional love in my life, and that is judo because that was just there for me. You know, obviously my wife's there for me now, but like Judah was was there for me, and I fell back on it, and it was almost that cushion that took that kind of fall away from me, and and it just looked after me, and it gave me structure. It gave me I had chance to be with my mates, and Judah is so easy to adapt for someone with visual impairment. Yeah. And at the time, I didn't have contact lenses, so I was doing it blindfolded, so I could grip hold of someone and still do the sport that I loved, because actually when I take my contact lenses out, I have like massive welding goggles and a hat on. So I had to start wearing that. Mm-hmm. And like, I'll be honest, it was not the most <laughs> handsome of looks at, your, at, a, at a teenager. I think, I think I didn't have a girlfriend for several years. So I, I had to wear that. In judo, obviously, you can't wear that. Yeah. So I had to wear a blindfold for judo. And then I was still doing judo competitions, blindfolded, and I was still beating people. And then at this one certain competition, just happened to behold, it was the VR, visually impaired judo coach there. And he saw me doing it. And he came around and talked to me afterwards and explained, like, asked what was happening and everything like that. And he, and he goes, you do know there's, like, contact lenses you can get? And I've gone, what? <laughs> and then, like, yeah. And then he actually, he then introduced me to the Vision Impaired Judo team. He then introduced me to kind of that side of it and then the Paralympic journey after that. So, yeah, it was just happened to hold because I met someone who was there at the time. That, that, that life then took away with me. What I'm taking away from all that, though, is that you... You did judo blindfolded. You're mad. I don't think I'd be a very good judo fighter anyway. But honestly, if I shut my eyes, I've got no idea where I am. I'm not sure how you're finding the other person. Never mind actually beating them whilst blindfolded. So what was really good about it was that, because judo, you just take a grip of someone. So in, in Paralympic judo, the difference between Paralympic and Olympic judo is that you just take a grip of him. So you start gripped up. So I was starting gripped up with someone and Judo is such a brilliant sport. You don't need your eyesight to go and beat someone. You can go and feel what they're doing. And that's what I was able to do. And I was able to beat people uh, blindfolded. And then that's how it happened. And these sighted people were like, how are you beating me blindfolded? And they were checking my blindfold and everything like that. And they're like, no, no, it's generally I can't see anything. It was, a, it was a challenge that I had to overcome. And I overcame it. And then I found contact lenses. So as you saw my eyes, I have really, really dark contact lenses. And if I go outside, I do have to put an extra pair of sunglasses on my face. So... I do have a lot of protection of my eyes because I do. I am very affected by the light, and it really does kind of it gives me headaches. And if if it's if it's too bright outside, I have to have kind of what we have a little bit of a nap just to kind of rest the eyes. So after that day we were together, Hannah, I had like a few days where I was just so tired just because of the amount of light that was kind of hitting my eye. So I have to manage that, but I've, I'm getting better at managing it. How do you manage that then in the judo hall? Because I imagine if it's anything just like a standard sports hall, they're, they're fairly light and the lights are not that nice when you don't have eyesight problems. So does it change when you're fighting or do you just have to deal with that? You just have to deal with it really. Like you have to manage it. Like I do wear my sunglasses a lot between fights. It's I have to sometimes take painkillers because of the amount of you know headaches I get from it. Halfway through the day, I'll have a nap. So between like prelims and the final block, 
I'll have about an hour nap in the middle. You just have to, again, you just learn to manage it and be able to kind of kind of make sure you're in the best possible shape for the final block. Yeah, 100%. But it's all things that... I guess, I guess your life with your wife, who's a wheelchair user, you've noticed things that you've never had to think of before. And in that sense, you'll be doing things in everyday life that I never have to really consider. But a nap between rounds sounds fantastic. I might start using that excuse. <laughs> yeah. She's really good at it, as you said. Like she, get, she knows me as well, where sometimes I'll just have to go and have a nap and she'll just go, you go. And she'll let, just tell me to go. And she'll know before I know. And that's really nice to have that person in your life that will understand that as well. As I say, like I'm her, I'm her legs and she's my eyes. You know, wherever she wants to go, I'll take her. And anything I need to see or you know need doing for me, she'll do it for me. So we are a little bit of a unit, and that's what we are very much of a unit. And yeah, that's what I love about our little oh, unit. You guys, I know. We, we're going to talk know. about Louise in a bit, but going back to judo, when you're not being soppy, when was it then that you decided that? you know this was what you wanted to do that you wanted to be an elite fighter so i was very very lucky that i got taken on by the paralympic gb onto paralympics inspiration program and that was just before london you know i, I got offered this and i was like oh wow what is this like and then because you always watch on tv but to kind of like what is this inspiration program well, i don't understand what it is and it's it's basically the younger athletes coming through get a chance to go and experience a games environment experience kind of what it's like to be an elite athlete and I was very lucky to go to London as one of them athletes and to be in like uh, where the judo, so we got judo tickets and that was amazing. And to feel that experience of being at home in London and and watching some of the other vision paired judo fighters fight and experience it, it was just like, I want to do this. I want to really be a Paralympian. And yeah, I just knew instantly then. And I just, I said to my coach, I said, we're going to be in Rio and we're going to be on that stage. And he looked at me because he also wasn't the vision paired judo coach at the time. He was just kind of came with us and experienced it as a, as a younger coach himself. And yeah, I remember saying we're going to be in Rio together. And he just looked at me and started laughing. And I was like, no, we are. He always remembers that moment. And then, yeah. And then he, it was weird because I then came onto the team a bit more and more. And then he then came on in 2014. And then, yeah, the rest is history. The rest is history. I think if my maths is correct, you can correct me, but around the same time as London 2012, you moved to Warsaw from our beloved Yorkshire. We are both traitors of our beloved Yorkshire. Yeah. Well, um, I just I have to admit something, Hannah, because there were people be tweeting about this. I am. I have to put my hands up. I am from Nottingham. I was born in Nottingham. So I was born in Nottingham, but raised in Yorkshire. So if you do cut me, I, I actually do bleed the Humber, but... I am actually Yorkshire, but however, there are people going to get your passport says Nottingham. Okay, I do. I am from Nottingham. Hands up before anyone sees this. I am from Nottingham, but <laughs> I was raised in Yorkshire, so I am a Yorkshireman. And yes, I didn't have to leave the beloved Yorkshire. But you know what? You've got you've got the passion of a Yorkshireman, so I'm I'm going to give it you. You your accent's pretty much there. You've got the passion. I, th- I think we're going to claim you, to be honest. Thank I think you, you're on our you. medal count. You, mo- you moved to start training at the British Judo Centre of Excellence, which is quite a name. You know, we just get High Performance Centre, but you are the Centre of Excellence. Well, I just, just it has changed to National Training Centre, and I'm very pleased about that. Was that a big decision? Yeah, it was. It was a massive decision. I, I, Hannah, all I can say I was at the age of 18, 19, I was a mummy's boy who mummy did everything for them. <laughs> 
And it also, living with a visual impairment, it's a big thing to change that environment. And especially when you're still going through that kind of understanding of it, it was quite tough. And it was a big, big step. And it was a very tough step. But again, British Judo put a really good kind of support place in there. And they kind of, they asked us what we needed. What, how do we make it more accessible for you? I think the biggest thing was to learn how to use a washing machine where you've not really used it before, but also now you have to deal with your vision issues. So it's like a massive, I think I dyed a few of my t-shirts <laughs> and a few t-shirts got destroyed. And I always used to know how to cook, but I realized that sausage, cheese and pasta with ketchup wasn't a healthy meal. So that was had to change as well. So there's a lot of kind of adaptations in my life that I had to make. But again, it was one of the best moments. There's, I was never, I'll be honest, I was never really clever enough to go to university. I was much a hands-on person. But um, that gave me that opportunity to have that kind of uni lifestyle. But obviously not going out and drinking, but kind of having living in halls, living with people. And yeah, it just took me out of my comfort zone. But I made some of my best friends from, from that journey. How did that move impact your training and your life as an athlete, aside from... I mean, that sounded like a uni lifestyle. You yeah. were still training yeah. hard, right? Oh, yeah, 100%. And that's the thing, like, you still train really hard. And as a young man, like, it's an incredible experience. But the judo also was amazing as well, kind of, like, to be able to do this. And, and I say this quite openly, I'm not, an, I'm not a naturally talented judo athlete. There are so many athletes who've come through the centre and left and still at the centre now that absolutely they've got so much more talent than I have. So I learnt quite quickly. I can't rely on that. I have to rely on hard work. I have to rely on being resilient, being the first one in, last one out, kind of being a sponge because, as I said, this wasn't kind of my first choice. So I had to really kind of learn to adapt to being the hardest worker, the kind of one who would be the most diligent, the one who has to be the kind of, one asking all the questions because mm -hmm. I had to catch up. You know, these lads were amazing. These lads were like national medalists. These were kind of um, Olympic athletes that you had to kind of try and keep up with. And But I didn't want it any other way. And I think that's made me who I am today. Um, I think it's made me the more professional because I learned from the mistakes I've made. And it was a lot of fun, but it was hard work. Really, really hard work. So did that time, you know, living there and then going to London 2012 with the Inspiration Programme, is that what lit the fire then to say yep i want to go to rio i want to win some medals yeah and it did it, i tell you what now honey it did really lit that fire and it really made me want to go to rio and and it was absolutely incredible I, i'll be honest the first couple of qualification events for rio didn't go my way like it was a big step up because i say i was just i was maybe a, a club level maybe national level athlete and to go to the next level was a big step up and the first few competitions, I just, I just didn't really perform. I struggled a lot um, with the step up to that next level. And I, and I realised, actually, this is not going to be an easy journey. This is going to be a very tough one that I'm going to have to fight for every, every little step. But then there's this one story that really reminded me and kind of made me who I think I am the most today was where I had this one qualification event. It didn't go well. So we had, we had a, over this conversation. We started to train harder. We went to Grimsby, which is my... The Ian Johns is who's now well, still Paralympic coach. That's his club in 2015. I was fighting my best mate Jack, who's also on the team with me. And um, they'll be angry if I've told this story because they say you're still living off it. But I'm like, I know I'm going to live off it. I will live off it forever. So I went and we, he tried to throw me, but I put my left leg out. And because obviously he's deaf and I'm deaf, I couldn't shout to him to stop because my leg got caught in the mat. And um, my left hip popped out. And 
it was quite a disgusting little injury. And it was weird because he didn't come out the back way, he came out the front way. And um, I was devastated. I was lying on the mat crying because, again, you know, I've just got this career, I've just got this fire in me that I want to be trying to become a Paralympian. And sadly, that nearly got taken away from me again because, that, you know, that's quite, of a, that's quite a serious injury that could be sometimes a career ender. But luckily for me, it wasn't. A lot, I, most of it because a lot of people said I'm made from jelly because my body is not muscular, it's more jelly. So luckily it wasn't that bad, but it was the World Games. It was like six weeks before the World Games and I just dislocated my hip. And um, I really wanted to go to the World Games because I knew if I didn't go to the World Games, I wouldn't go to Rio. So I, I had this mad meltdown in front of my PD and my coach. I was like, I really want to go to Korea at the World Games. I really want a medal because if I don't, I go to Rio. And he said, I said, give me 1%. And I said, he gave me 1%. He said, right, listen, if you can be able to make it onto the plane, we'll support you. I was like, give me 1%. So I had the second operation. It was about three weeks before the World Games. And, there were, and, and the PD came up to me and goes, Chris, we're, we're most likely not going to take you. I was like, just give me that 1%, I promise you. So in three weeks, I had the operation. Luckily, they found out I was made of jelly. So it was not too much damage. And then they let me say, right, we can do a really intense rehab but it's never been done before and you all have to cut a lot of corners and they were like but if you if it does come out again which is a higher chance you will have to stop judo i was like no no trust me i'll be fine not knowing that i would be but i just wanted so much to be go to the world games so about i think you're supposed to have like three months like where you really use crutches i had two days i took the crutches out i started to walk on it um you're supposed to have stitches in for like Two weeks, I had him after about three days, I had like glue put on it. And then you're not supposed to do Judah for five months. I did it after, I think it was like two weeks. And they were like, what you're doing, in, we do not recommend. I was like, trust me, I'll do it. But I was icing every night. I was doing my rehab twice a day. I was doing like, I just wanted to become a Paralympian. And I wanted to be, because I knew I had to medal at World Games to get to Rio. And I just wanted to become a Paralympian so much. And I was willing to put my whole career online to do that. And luckily, because I had to hit some like test results to get there, but luckily I got a little bit of a push, if that makes sense. I was, I was I managed to get onto the plane and I was really emotional because like, I was giving 1% and like they wouldn't even let me on the plane, but I managed to hit the test result. And yeah, and then luckily I managed to take my first ever world medal at the World Games in Korea, which meant basically I qualified for Rio. But like it was, that's one story where that's when I knew that I, that was that step I had to take to get to Rio, and that was my next. You, you know, when you talk about hurdles in life, that was my hurdle that I knew that I had to take to get into into Rio, and then the rest of again is history, as I say. I feel like you're using the word hurdle very um, loosely there. Most people use the word hurdle as like, oh, you know, I stubbed my toe, had to miss a few sessions. You just dislocated your hip fast forwarded months of rehab into days that is a crazy story <laughs> yeah i i know <laughs> i mean again my mates are listening to this because you you, you know you, you keep telling you live off that story but live off it that's it that's incredible because literally you decided that rio was kind of worth more than your career like if that hadn't have worked out well we won't be having a chat right now chris you know you won't be on this podcast. That is that is a quick. That's the thing. That's when I knew that that step had to be taken. And we talk about like the fire in me. That was the fire that lit. That was lit in me. Mm-hmm. That was the kind of 
fire that kept me going through, I say one of the most tough because you know I've just just found this amazing sport that I'm going to hopefully have an amazing career in, and then it got taken away from me. So then it was like, how do I come back from that? And that fire was so so hot in me that I wanted to become a Paralympian that bad that I was willing to put not just my career but like some of that could be very dangerous on the line. Yeah, but yeah, I knew that's I had your to mobility. do it. Yeah, and would I do it again? Hell yeah, because it was one of the toughest but best decisions I made. And then that obviously led me kind of into getting into Rio. Please don't do it again, just as a disclaimer. Oh, Hannah, like, I don't have any sense. If I go and break myself, I'll promise you I will be back on the mat as soon as I can. Like, I don't know, these judo fighters, I promise you now, judo fighters have the most weirdest look, out, like, look on like, injuries because like, they'll just either tape them up or try to get back on the mat, even though they're not fully fit. They'll just try and go and fight someone. And it's that kind of weird sort of mentality that people have. I don't know what it is, but it was one of the toughest decisions, but best decisions I made. You know what? I think a little bit of it is is being a disabled person. I am exactly the same, like, get a niggle, and I'm like, you know what? I'll push it out. I'll be fine. It's It's okay. Nothing worse can happen. And I think you just, yeah, you just look at your life and you're like, well, I can't get much more broken so let's just crack on <laughs> exactly exactly yeah what's the point the dream ending came out of it then because you did become a paralympian you went to rio and you came fifth yeah that is the most amazing moment of my life stepping onto the mat in rio because you know that was a dream come true like i what five six years before that i was being told that i'm making it up and we don't know what's yeah. up with you and then six years later you stepped onto the mat in rio as a paralympian like Representing your country. Representing my country, which I've always wanted to do. I've always wanted to represent my country in some sort of way. And to do that was amazing. But the first person, my first fight was a Brazilian in Brazil. And he's like the legend of a sport. And he is like six-time Paralympic medalist. And it was quite a tough person to fight for my first ever, you know, first ever fight. That's the first time where I felt like I was a baddie. Because my name was mentioned. And I can't hear that well. Once it's my hearing aids, I can't hear. But that's the first time I could hear someone booing me. And I was like, what is that? And I just looked at my coach and we just smiled. I was like, this is incredible. You I couldn't smiled? hear him. Like, I, I yeah, because it's like people booed me. Do you know what? It was because this is like, this is what I did it for. This is the reason I put my whole career on the line because I was still in Rio, baddie, as a baddie, trying to fight another <laughs> Brazilian. This is incredible. This is like, this is the most amazing moment of my life. And yeah, sadly, I did actually lose to him. But. What an experience. My first ever fight in the Paralympics. And then I then I had to come back the hard way. I had to beat people through the repressars and then I got to the, the bronze medal fight and it was the worst kind of moment so far at that period of my life because, again, I just didn't I didn't achieve my goal. I didn't get a Paralympic medal. But I always say that was a stepping stone because was I ready realistically to, to call myself a Paralympic medalist, a Paralympic champion? No. I had a mad kind of few years and I, I don't think I kind of was ready to have that title to my name. So, you know, as anyone would do, you go back to the drawing board and you have to look at yourself in the mirror and go, why wasn't I good enough? Why didn't I make them improvements? And it's a, it's a hard thing to do. But, you know, I, I had some great people around me who who kind of gave me that support and let me do that. And that's when I found Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And that's when I kind of found that side of it, wrestling and understanding that, you have to be a bigger sponge and go to the best people and be that like, one annoying person asking all the questions that people might not ask. And yeah, it was a tough year, but it was meant to happen. Absolutely. But I mean, you did return home with kind of like 
an alternate prize because it's where you met your wife was in Rio, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. You know, I always say I got a platinum medal, you know. For anyone listening, by the way, who isn't aware, Louise, your lovely wife, Louise Hunt-Skelly, she's a Paralympic wheelchair tennis player. She won 13 singles titles in her career. She is an absolutely lovely girl. So can you t- can you tell us a bit about Louise? Go on, tell us how you met. Uh, yeah, so it was weird. Like, yeah, you were there for the Paralympic farewell dinner, weren't you? I was. In real- I'm, I'm always yeah, everywhere. Yeah, you're always there. You're everywhere. <laughs> you're everywhere. You're an institution. Um, so... Basically, she came onto our table. So we had a judo table. The judo table is always put somewhere where they can be controlled. And if it gets out of hand, <laughs> someone can step in. Because, you know, you know, it was a lot of fun. And, you know, she, her and Lucy Shuka came onto our table. And they kind of, they looked at us and were like, how are they Paralympians? And then, then the lights came on and then we all put our sunglasses on. And we were like, ah, right. So I'm like, yeah, yeah, we know what your problem is. So she came onto our table. I never actually got really to speak to her on the night because, like, I was plonked in the middle between Sam Ingram and Jack Hodgson. So I actually really never got to speak to her. I said hello and everything like that. And then, and actually, she'll say it herself, she actually didn't really look at me that night. She was looking at my, my one of my best mates, John O'Drain. Oh, who, brutal. Like, That's I know, brutal. I know. It's not three seconds. I'm like, <laughs> all right. So she said, oh, I looked at your mate. He was more fit than you. I was like... I was like, excuse me, I was a bit of a catch. And then afterwards, actually, we didn't see each other in the the village because, you know, we were like the first few days on and then we kind of did a bit of exploring. We had a bit of time just to chill out. So, and obviously being a visually impaired, trying to see someone, it's quite difficult. But then you've got other people, like I'm going up to people trying to squint to see who they are. (laughs) And it's really rude. So you just, yeah, it's quite difficult because there's so many people going around and you just, Mm -hmm. you can't see who they are. So actually, we didn't really see each other until the plane home. And then, yeah, and then obviously I can't sit because I'm a hip for long periods of time. I have to get up and move. And then I scared her. She was watching, I think it was like Cloverfield. Okay. And she was a bit, she was a midst about going to get the scary bit. And I scared her. And then she, yeah, she said some choice words to me. And I just, she obviously knew who it was and everything. Like that. And we started talking and then we kind of met up, started to meet up a little bit more. And, and then, you know. And now you're married. Yeah. Now we're married. She she knew I was a better catch. So see, yeah. she got she got the right one in the end. That's all that counts. It was weird because like that was that first person who also got the lifestyle because she was living the same lifestyle. We came into each other's life, I think, at the right time, and yeah, and now, now we're married. Do you think it helps to have a wife who's an athlete? You know, is she extra supportive? Or I mean, me and Nathan, who's my partner, we are like we're dead competitive. I am hard on him. I'm like, you better win. <laughs> I have to be. We're very competitive with each other. And I'll be totally honest. I hate losing to her if we have a... Con- I, there's a specific moment, one memory, where I realised she was the right one. We went on holiday. We were, like on our, we were on a cruise. And we are playing shuffleboard. And it got to the point where I hate when she wins because she's, she's the worst winner. And she'll just <laughs> smile at me. and like yeah, She's not nah, very humble, yeah. is she? She's a, she's a, a glutter with you. With me, she's ne- she's such a humble person outside of our competitiveness to each other. And then she just smiles at me and it- I just can't speak to her. I can't, like, <laughs> I have to walk away. I hate losing to her. And that's it. And it's weird because I love her to bits. But when it comes to competitiveness, and what annoys me, and she always does this, she goes, well, I don't feel the same. But I know she feels the same when I win. But she always, like, acts this kind of innocent person. But um, <laughs> I become a really bad winner when she I win. She helps though. She understands the lifestyle. She understands the choices. She also challenges me on some of the decisions I make. 
And that's what I like about it. Like she goes to me, do you think that's good for you? You know, mm. and I think if I ever did something to my hip again or anything like that, I think she would be kind of really challenging me. Would it be the safest thing to do? Like, would I be able to have done what I did 2015 now? She would be more kind of thinking about me and my kind of life after judo. But, you know, and that's what your partner's there for sometimes, to be that yeah. kind of sounding board, to challenge you on them tough decisions you have to make. But, yeah, yeah I love her to bits. And she is a, we have so much fun together. And as I said earlier, like, she's my eyes and I'm her legs. I'll get her anywhere she wants to go. I should, she'll read anything out to me or describe anything out to me that I'm, I'm missing. And we're a little, little unit, I say. Now, Chris, enough of the soppy stuff. We've, managed, right we've managed to get this far without, you know, really mentioning too many of your achievements. But the time to be humble is over. So, Paralympics GB for podcast fans, reigning Paralympic champion. You've won European Championship gold medals. You've you've done it all. He has done it all. So let's talk about Tokyo. Let's go back. Not that far to see we're now in the next Olympic year. You went to Tokyo as world number one. Uh, you'd already won the other gold medals. So did you feel any particular pressure to go in and win that one? Tokyo was very difficult, I think, for anyone, really, because obviously we had the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And like leading into like 2020, I felt like I was in a good shape. I felt like I was ready for Tokyo. And then obviously Tokyo got postponed because of the, the pandemic. And then that yeah. kind of set off a whole new level because... You then go, then you get that thing of, is it going to go ahead? Mm-hmm. Is it going to happen? Especially judo, we couldn't have any contact because mm-hmm. of COVID. And that then sent you in a spiral of stuff. You know, I was living living with Louise and we're like, what do we do? And we still had an amazing time together because we, we had so much quality time together. And that's realized when I wanted to be my wife. But also we trained each other. We helped each other keep fit. Although it wasn't a f- like I couldn't grab hold of her and start chucking her around, but we still... <laughs> We still able to do circuits together. We were able to go for cycles. You know, I was having like all my bands around the tree outside our house doing like <laughs> all the lap pull downs. But we had to keep ourselves fit in the best possible shape. And luckily that happened. And also we had a bit of time to kind of heal them little kind of injuries we had. Because judo, you'll get injuries anywhere across your body. So it, our body had a bit of time to rest and to kind of catch up with itself and, and to heal them little kind of injuries you had, do a lot of rehab and stuff like that. So we use that time productively, even though it's very tough, we use it very productively to make sure we're in the best possible shape going back into the, to the training time. And I always say this, you know, you always turn it on its head into a positive, like, okay, yes, it got postponed, but we've got another year to get even better. Absolutely. And that's what we did. And we were quite lucky in the sense of we went back because of like, it had that weird sort of rule where if you're a professional athlete, you can go back to training, mm-hmm. but then you had to be in your pods and then you had to be kind of, you had to do tests every day and everything like that. And it was quite a tough decision because, you know, obviously COVID's still around and, you know, you wanted to be in the best possible shape for the games, but also then you've got to risk catching it and taking it back to your wife because I still wanted to be with Louise and it was a very tough time. Like, I had to test every day. I've had that many swabs up my nose. Like, I still find <laughs> stuff up there now, but it had to be, them decisions had to be made and it was a very tough year, but we managed to come around in, into 2021 in the best possible shape, avoiding COVID, making sure I've kind of all them stuff that was causing me issues was um, ironed out. And then you had that dreaded few, because we had two competitions before Tokyo. So then it's that kind of going, have I lost it? Am I still going to be good enough? You know, luckily I took a silver in Azerbaijan and then I took a bronze at the, what, I was thinking like the British Grand Prix. But again, they weren't amazing performances and, mm-hmm. and you doubt yourself and you go, 
have I lost it? Am I going to meddle? Like, I don't want to do a Rio. And like, all this self-doubt comes across you. We all got a bit of a telling off by our PD, which didn't help. But he then was kind of hard on us because he said, this is not good enough. And we all knew that. Mm-hmm. And to be fair, I think we did need a bit of a, a boot up the a boot up the bum to get us going. But leading into Tokyo was the best preparation until I think it was like three weeks before we flew out. There was like a positive case in our training group. Oh, no. And then that, and then you're going like, oh my god! Like you have all these horror stories of not getting there and everything like that and catching COVID. So again, we were we were training of like distance from each other. Then we had to then just train with one person. Mm-hmm. So I my main training partner was uh, Max Gregory. I could only train with him, so he was my only training partner before we got onto the plane. And then we got to Tokyo, so we're like fine, we got to Tokyo, and then we were able to train. And then yeah, and it was weird because I've been to Tokyo. Well, before they were about 12 times before oh, wow. the games. Okay. Just because cause Japan's a real big sport for judo. So you, you go out out there because you get like 300 people on the map easily doing judo. So we go out there anyway. So yeah, it was quite um, quite weird because this time we were in a bubble. So you couldn't, you had these weird sort of kind of tram lines, didn't you? I don't know about you, but we had these weird tram lines going to our dojo. And if you yep. stepped out, this person would pop out and go, get back in. And you were like, <laughs> where have you come from? But like, <laughs> It was the most weird experience, but it was hard because it's like there is pressure on you, like especially if you're going in world number one. There was even more pressure because the mate, my main kind of rival, who was also going for the gold medal, he got sent home because he did something naughty. Oh. So he got sent home back to Georgia. Then I remember getting a call from a coach going, right, there's even more pressure on you now because the guy, your biggest rival's gone home. And I've gone, oh, God. But again, I think, I wasn't phased by it. I, I've had a great sports psychologist, Andrew Crookshank, and I have tools to be able to cope with this pressure. I have my toolbox, my imaginary toolbox, and I have all these tools ready to, to use in these circumstances. And for some reason, just that one day, everything came together, and it was the best I've ever felt. Mentality-wise, it was the best I've ever felt. The biggest thing for me was like semi-final of the Paralympic Games I'm not known for a big thrower. I am known for like strangled arm locks, groundwork. And for some reason, I just decided that I was going to throw big. And, and there's a funny, funny little story where I've already thrown a guy and I've got a score. And, my, and I've gone in to clinch, which basically means try to wrestle someone. Okay. And my coach, you can hear my coach going, no, no, no. And he shouted because he, t- he didn't want me to do anything stupid. And then, it, and then you hear halfway through, he goes, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and then I threw him and then, I did because I'm not known for my throwing, but that day I felt like I was unbeatable, and it was just yeah, it was absolutely amazing because like just knowing that obviously coming off from the mat from getting my Paralympic gold medal, it was just like a bit of it's a bit of like a cherry on top because like everything I've been through through people questioning me and my disability mm-hmm. is is this the right move for me going into professional sport? Then obviously the injury, then obviously Rio, all that then adds up, and then you're like, I think it all adds up in experience and. And understanding that, yeah, you can do this. And that day, just everything just clicked. Ben Goodridge with two Shido against him. Skelly with one, but he has that Wasari. Can he hold in there for the last four seconds? Or can Ben Goodridge do something about this? Can Goodridge do a Kalilov, as we saw in the bronze medal match? Four seconds to go. Wait for the call of Hajime. And then wait for the gong four seconds later. He can't do it, Goodrich. The gold has gone gone. to Skelly. Christopher Skelly takes the gold medal for Great Britain. 
Fantastic result for him. Ben Goodridge just couldn't quite match that. Desperately tried his hardest to get a score, but it was Christopher Skelly's Tommy Onagi, that technique that saw him through into that gold medal bank. And he takes that fantastic win and the gold medal back to Great Britain. I can't explain it. I think it was the right place, right time. I think everything we've done, everything, all the training I've done, all the sports psychologist meetings, all the nutrition meetings, everything just came together on that one day and just was like, yeah, I, don't, I couldn't even explain it. And like, it was the most special moment. I just, I didn't know what to do because I'm awful with celebrations. People think, oh, that's amazing. I just literally didn't know what to do with my arms because I was told, do not do any celebrations. So I was like, yeah, like that's all I could do because I was just so happy because that was the one thing that, you know, I never think I'd be a Paralympic gold medalist. I never thought I'd do that in my life. And yeah, and I broke down after that. And then I became really hungry and then mentioned pork pies. Well, yeah, that is... That is your your little famous bit, I think. Did you get the pot pie when you got home? A lot of them, a lot of them. And I did get a bit of a telling off from Louise as well because she said that one moment in your whole career, you could have asked for anything, like Ferraris, watches. Literally. You know, anything. And she went, you went pot pie. But what I try to explain to people, when you've just had a full day, because I can't eat a competition day, I'm like a sick, nervous rep. I just went, I just wanted food. I was just like... Why could you have said, like, Rolex or anything like that? But I don't wear Rolexes. I can't drive. I've got no fashion sense. And the thing I love the most outside of my wife is pork pies. And I was like, Louise, get the pork pies ready. I'm coming home. And then, yeah, that just seems to have stuck with me for the rest of my life. And that is, That's going to be the one now. You know, I asked for... I ate a McFlurry live on Channel 4 after my race at London 2012. And it still gets brought up. So it's it's not going anywhere. It's going to follow you around. That's me, though, isn't it? Like, my mum was like, that's just typical you. <laughs> you know, like, you could have said anything in the world, you just said that, and I was like, yeah. Well, it makes you human, and I think that that's, that's how people relate to you. I didn't know what to say. Like, what do I say? Like, you know, another tough thing as well, like, two weeks, actually, I forgot this as well, like, two weeks before I was able to compete, my dear coach, Jeff Brady, my first ever judo coach, passed away. So, like, I think that's, I think that's another thing that propelled me and had that fire in me, because... I wanted to do it for him and I wanted to do it for my coach Ian Johns and I wanted to do my family and I just wanted to do it to repay people that supported me and loved me even though I was in the darkest period of my life they still wanted to, to be with me and and trust me and yeah and it was the best best moment of my life and the most surreal moment of my life absolutely incredible but actually now now's when the hard part starts you are fully on everyone's radar. If you didn't already know, I'm going to make it very obvious. Um, you're the one to beat. Has that changed your mindset or your preparation or anything going into Paris 2024? So we had a big classification change in, in judo. So you have now J1s and J2s. So my weight category of under 100s has been has got rid of. So I'm not under 100s anymore. I'm plus 90s, which opens up another door now. So my mentality is actually has switched a lot. But to it for a different reason because like gone is that weight category now. That is that's old news. Like under hundred kilos. Like there's no that category is not going to exist anymore. And I'm the Paralympic champion of that weight category. That means you're reigning champion forever. I know, I know. It's amazing. <gasps> what a dream. <laughs> what a dream, I know. So, <laughs> I do, but, so really, I said this to my, my sports psychologist, I've become the hunter again. 
So I'm now a new weight category of plus 90 kilos. So that could be 90 kilos and above. So that could range from like 91 to someone who's 180 kilos. So that's a big, that's a big jump for me. I am not anything now. Like I am just me again, you know, and, and in some ways it definitely helps me because, you know, I don't have any pressure on me. My weight category is gone. You know, I don't, I'm not reigning champion or everything. I'm just me again. So as I said, I've become the hunter again. I go and hunt down the best people. And there are a lot of good lads in that, in this new category. And there's a lot of lads who can beat me, you know, and, and that is, that is realistic. I'm being realistic, you know, but I like a challenge. I like to chase people down, hunt them down and be, try and become the best again. And that, that's what these last couple of years have been is, is me having to take that another step up to that next level. I want to become Paralympic champion, but it's going to be a hard draw. You know, it's going to be a hard time doing it, but I'm willing to put the effort in to go and become, hopefully, double Paralympic champion. I think that's such a great way of looking at it and dealing with it, I think, because sometimes going in as the reigning champion is it's a lot of pressure. So I'm going to, you know what? I could speak to you forever. I've got a million more questions, but your answers are so thorough. I love it. I'm going to leave it with one last question. Then it's very open. So what will a successful 2024 look like for you? Obviously, obviously, it is it is being Paralympic champion again. That is my that is the biggest success for me. The other thing is is staying. It's going to be quite cheesy now, but it's being true to who I am, and to to knowing that I have given everything into these these last couple of years since Tokyo, knowing that I will for the next nine months I will put my body on the line. I will be the hardest working on the mat. I will be the hardest working off the mat. Knowing that. And like making sure I just stick to who I am and enjoy myself. Like I always say this to the younger guys as well, who comes into the National Training Center. It's like just enjoy your judo, and that's what I want to finish on is in the enjoyment and to make this last little bit the most fun time I've ever had. Because I love this sport, I always cherish this sport, and to not lose the f- sight of that, that actually this sport has given me everything, and I want to repay that and just have fun along the way. I love that. That's such a just the perfect ending. Thank you so much for being my guest today. I've really, really enjoyed talking to you, hearing all your sometimes ridiculous stories. And I think people will have learned so, so much as well. So Thank you for having me on. And, and again, that's another thing. I never thought I'd be sat on the podcast with you, having a conversation with you. And that's a bit like, that's a bit surreal. So yeah, thank you so much for having me on. And, and I'd also just thank you to Panama GB as well. Because, you know, they, they are incredible and they give all the athletes the best support. And we are the best team. And this is a little bit of a warning to everyone who's listening. Paralympic GB are coming to take over Paris, so get ready. I think we'll Mic leave drop. it there. No yeah. one else. Nothing else we can add to that. So no. watch out. Paralympics GB watch are coming out. in 2024. For more info on Paralympics GB, head to paralympics.org.uk and follow us on the socials at Paralympics GB. Don't forget to hit subscribe or follow wherever it is that you're listening to this show as there'll be more shows, more guests and more stories from behind the scenes in Paralympic sports to come. Thanks for listening and see you next time. The Paralympics GB Podcast with Hannah Cockcroft.